0: You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 7th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today.
1: The Turks do not view the Kurds as an ally, they view them essentially as a terrorist organization and the fact that they're allowing the situation to happen, the United States that is, means that this is going to be a big problem, not just for the Kurds and the Turks, but probably have regional ramifications."
0: As Donald Trump promises to clear the ground for Turkish intervention in northeastern Syria, we'll ask what abandoning the Kurds means for peace in the region. My guests Holly Dagres and Robert Fox will discuss that and the day's other news, including a violent response to protests in Iraq. And with Extinction Rebellion once more taking to the streets in London, we'll ask if demonstrations have taken on a new meaning
2: in the modern world. Plus. Trudeau's ratings are unchanged and new research published by McGill University in Montreal late last week revealed the scandal died out in online chatter after just three days.
0: Monocle's Thomas Lewis asks why outrage can't always be sustained. I am Marcus Hippie. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Holly Dagres, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of Iran Source Blog and Robert Fox, defense editor at London's Evening Standard. We begin in the Middle East. The White House has given the green light to a Turkish military operation in northern Syria, effectively abandoning Washington's longtime military partners, the Kurds. This move is expected to infuriate many within the U.S. military and amongst Washington's European allies. Holly, could you tell us more about this announcement?
1: Well, I think the news came to a shock not just to us, but to the Kurds themselves when the White House issued that statement. And um, this is a very big problem because um, the, the Turks aren't going to be exactly handling the Kurds with kid gloves here. This is a... We have to remember that the Turks do not view the Kurds as an ally. They view them essentially as a terrorist organization. And the fact that they're allowing the situation to happen, the United States, that is, means that this is going to be a big problem, not just for the Kurds and the Turks, but probably have regional ramifications, especially the fact that the Kurds are holding all these members of the Islamic State in jail. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the Kurds are going to be kindly handing them over to the Turks? Are they going to be let loose? And I think that itself is a problem because as you well know, that some of these um, members of ISIS were actually European nationals initially. And so I think that could be a big problem for all of us here.
0: Robert, how significant is this development?
3: It's absolutely huge. But it is following exactly what Holly has said. It's, it is this um, sort of terrible... Lack of attention span of Trump, uh, he appears to have done this, I guess, at the behest of Erdogan, uh, the president of Turkey. He likes strong men. He he sucks up to them um, a lot. Uh, his I is not on the ball of foreign policy, I'm talking about Trump now, and this is up really worrying people both in the State Department and in the Pentagon, and I, I believe there was Pentagon advice not to do this, because we've had all this sort of very strong activity of the Kurds and Kobani, you remember, over the years, and they did support the Free Syrian Army very, very effectively, and they did a lot. The Kurds did an awful lot to recover Raqqa, in fact, even the the the, 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 the Kurdish women's brigades of the, of the popular militia, um, did that? It, it, it is a betrayal, which is part of the whole story of uh, the Kurds. They have no friends but the mountains. It is part of an ongoing civil war in Turkey, which is very, very nasty indeed, and it has been going on, on and off, for over thirty years now. But the other bit that we really need to go on is this: this cordon sanitaire. This this sanitation area, as it were, that Turkey wants to do to chew out a bit of northern Syria and kick out the refugees. So it's not only the ISIS uh, prisoners in the hands of the Kurds, as Holly said, it's actually getting rid of those two and a half to three million refugees inside uh, inside the Turkish border. Sorry, this is going to be
0: geopolitically, and not only for the region, big trouble. Let's talk about that in a moment, but before that let's 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 still look at the reasons why Trump allows this to happen. So Robert, you mentioned that Trump's attention span is, is short. We know that he likes strong men, but what other reasons may he have to actually allow President Erdogan to do this?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think that the the other issue is, yes, there is an issue about being a strong man. It's also worth noting there's two Trump towers in Turkey. And I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on in this conversation, but we have this impeachment inquiry going on. Trump is in desperate need to say that he's done something positive. And if you read the statement, he says he does not want to spend more U.S. taxpayer dollars on this, the U.S. has defeated ISIS. We no longer need to be there, and so um, for him, this is maybe in a way a, maybe a sign that he's making a wind of some sorts um, for the U.S. people, and it really depends um, what how the American people look at this. But for him, it's there's a 2020 election, there's an impeachment inquiry. He has an attention span that's not very. Um, I guess it's arguably he's fickle-minded. So I mean, it, it, this I think for him, it's not even about ramifications in the region. He wants to just do something, and again, going back to, we don't know what was going on in this call.
3: There is one fixed point in all this, that Trump, he's obviously been persuaded, I don't know whether it's big oil inside the United States, is actually the Middle East doesn't matter all that much, or as much as it has done in the past. And I do not want a war in my re-election year, and this is driving an awful lot. Meanwhile, uh, his allies from Saudi Arabia to Gulf Arabs like UAE, but above all, Israel are are really, really worried about what's going on because it's incredibly fragile. There's a lot of activity. And to take on what Holly has just said, yes, um, it's a headline. We defeated ISIS is absolutely not true at all. ISIS has atomized or whatever it is, um, like a like a like a mercury ball, which you shatter with a hammer, because you get it. it, it it's still present in Iraq. This is absolutely clear now, and quite active. It is still pl- present and very present. The franchise not hardwired in a, in, in a command diagram, but you have got this pro-ISIS element uh, north of the Hindu Kush um, in the steppe, in, in, across the stands, which is becoming a stronger and stronger element. They are extremely professional. Sorry, it's also the fickle lack of attention span of international media. Everything is so concentrated down on social media. The big international reporting, look at a, a magazine, I'm afraid, like The Economist now, is very now you see me, now
0: you don't. It's very patchy, but there's a lot going on there still. What does all this mean for the Kurdish, the relations between the U.S. and the Kurds and and also to the relations between U.S. and and many partners who are wondering what the White House is doing now?
1: Well, I mean, the Kurds here, I mean, I think they are looking at this and saying, well, we don't have any allies. The the U.S. are not solid partners in this. And like um, Robert said, their only friends are really the mountains in this situation. And so I think when you're uh, one would hope that they're looking at this also and saying, well, this is only a Trump administration sort of thing. But. I mean, for the time being, as long as Donald Trump is president of the United States, I think the United States will be interpreted as not a reliable ally, whether it's with dealing with the Kurds or other regional issues. I mean, he hasn't been able to deliver on any of his promises. Some will say, oh, he opened a Jerusalem embassy, but it was actually the consulate with a sign that says embassy in Jerusalem and some higher walls. He hasn't done anything useful for the region. It's looking
3: utterly incoherent. And actually, I won't use the fatal words that were used at the beginning of the Bosnian or the Balkan crisis. Now is the time of Europe. But to the Kurdish enclave, for instance, in Northern Iraq, Europe actually that includes Britain as well, is very, very important indeed. They've got to get off their backsides now and work out an independent policy of Trump because the, the, they've protected these people. The Kurds have have had low cards throughout history, but particularly after the settlements at the end of the First World War, of which all this
0: is a legacy and they're damn good at asymmetric guerrilla and terrorist warfare themselves. Do you think we're going to be seeing that kind of an independent policy at some point and who who should basically instigate it?
3: Oh, it's there. I mean, it's in Kuwait because it's there because they were let down, sorry, to do the history lesson at the Treaty of Seva in 1924 because the aspiration was there for a Kurdistan and for an Armenia to be – the Armenians, another great diaspora people, um, have uh, managed to arrange things in a rather Neapolitan way and very clever, very adept and a really important uh, constituency, an important constituency in the USA – which the Kurds are not. But what is coming together is all the the terrible... It's not just victimhood, but the terrible deal that was given to the minorities like Mm. the Yazidis and so on. And and next to it, you you can hardly open a paper every month, quite rightly, whether it's Le Monde or a German paper or an American paper, look what's happened to the Christian populations. And it's the fact is that what this serves notice with Trump's activity is that if you're a minority
0: in the Middle East, you're in trouble. And and just finally, before we move on, so, um, Robert, you already mentioned something about this. If we see this Turkish military operation take place in northern Syria, what are going to be the ramifications? To which extent is that going to destabilise the region? Well, the Syrian war, which never went away, goes on and
3: ratchets up uh, um, more. This then brings into the people that really think that they run the strategy for the rump assad actually military regime, and that's Russia and Iran. And it's what they're going to say about it, which is, which it, which is going to be very interesting. Are they um, going to want to squash the final enclave in Idlib, which is still very active and you've still got some jihadis, quite a lot of jihadi groups, I mean, not just one, but about five or six really uh, oper- operating there. It is very opaque, and where I think there is such a mistake... Going back to the point that Holly made at the very beginning about the ISIS prisoners or the people captured uh, uh, by the Kurds, this, I think it's questionable in today's world, this cannot be contained. It will not be contained to one e- enclave. They will come back and they will come back with a vengeance. And we know uh, that IS uh, and indeed the Al Qaeda aff- affiliates have threatened uh, interests in Europe with, with
0: vengeance. Holly, do you agree with everything?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think Robert hit the nail on the head on all this. I mean, it's not its not looking good. And, the, and it seems that what we're doing essentially is pushing the Kurds into the hands of the Iranians and the Russians and even the government of Bashar al-Assad, which it, it, it essentially defeats the whole purpose of what's been going on the past few years. And it, it's just not, this is not going to end well. And I think everybody is very much aware of it except Trump himself. <laughs>
0: Robert Fox and Holly Dakar is there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here is Monocle's Tom Edwards with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Marcus. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, says the EU will decide at the end of the week whether a Brexit deal is going to be reached. Macron said talks should now proceed swiftly. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the EU should not be lured into thinking there'll be a Brexit delay. Portugal's Prime Minister Antonio Costa has won re election but's fallen short of an outright majority in Parliament. His Socialist Party has just over 36% of the vote and will have to form a minority government. Nevertheless, Costa said he was delighted with the result. And today's Monocle Minute reports that Japan's parliament is sitting for an extraordinary two-month session as Prime Minister Shinzo Abe attempts to revise his country's pacifist constitution. Abe is trying to legalise the all-around role of the military. For more like that, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Tom. This is house view. I am Marcus Hippie here with Robert Fox and Holly Dagres. Protests continue in Iraq. So far, over 100 protesters have been shot. While blame for the bulk of the deaths has been laid at the feet of the Iraqi security services, some are pointing the finger at pro-Iranian militias. Reports suggest that paramilitary snipers aligned with Iran have been targeting protesters with kill shots. Holly, what do you make of these reports? How credible do they sound?
1: I mean, when it comes to Iraq, Iran has had its hand in the country over the years because of the vacuum of the 2003 Iraq war. But at the same time, the bigger picture is that these are as protesters being killed, regardless of who they're being killed by, I think that this is kind of being uh, excused. But we are in a region where authoritarian governments are known to shoot protesters and then blame others for it, and or usually the foreign hand, and in this case being Iran. I don't have information or knowledge about it, but there is that possibility as well. So I think what the reality here is that we need to address what these protesters want. They're fed up with corruption. They're fed up with the economy. They, they want goods and services. They don't have proper running water in areas or electricity. So I think that rather than shooting these protesters, the government needs to actually heed their calls and listen to them.
0: Iran's supreme leader said over the weekend that enemies are trying to drive a wedge between Tehran and Baghdad. What do you think of, of this comment? What do you think he was trying to say?
1: Well, I think it goes back to what I said. Whenever something's going down in in an authoritarian government, they won't take responsibility with what's happening in the country. They will blame other the foreign hand for, for their problems rather than take responsibility and try to help the, um, um, I, I guess... Remove the problem from the situation. So I, I think for here, for Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei to make these comments, I I don't think we should be even paying attention to what he has to say.
0: Robert, what is your impression now over here? How much does Iran actually? What is the role Iran is playing in all this? Well, I don't know,
3: is the simple answer to that. Uh, um, and nor do I think Do a lot of the reports that we're getting. Remember, we're getting a lot of the reports from Gulf Arab sources, and they have a big dog in this fight. Iran is the big Satan, on the other, or what the Italians would call the grande vecchio, the great man in the mountains running everything, and its hand is behind everything. It doesn't quite work actually, with this one, because these are very poor Shiites mm-hmm. in Tahrir, um, uh, in in uh, Sadra City, and they claim they are protesting in the name of the fairly radical but na- uh, ultra-nationalist uh, Shiite cleric, Maktadar al-Sadr, and they invoke the name of the um, Supreme Ayatollah, of uh, in, in 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 Iraq, um, Al Sistani, it just is not in the interest of Iran if it is controlled by the Houthis force or the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to shoot these people down. I think it is a corrupt gangster element which is in the regime itself. And it started when Nuri al-Maliki took over and al-Mahdi is very, very much his pupil, is very much the apprentice to his sorcerer. Because only today, actually, there has been an admission from the military rather than the militias is, yes, the security forces exceeded orders and went outside the, rule, mm. uh, the, the rules of, uh, rules of in- engagement. Mm. I think for once, yes, of course, there is always in a Shiite regime, which essentially it is, in Baghdad there's going to be an Iranian influence, but it's not, this is not prime Iranian policy.
0: How hopeless is the situation in Iraq now, Oli, Can you think of anything that could stabilize the situation?
1: I mean, I, I think the greater was the corruption issue. I mean, Transparency International says it's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. This is a country that is on a, on a heap of oil wealth, and here they can't even—they don't have electricity in some areas, or there's sewage everywhere. And so, I think that the fact they need to stop pocketing the money and actually give to, back to the people. This is this is ridiculous. I mean. The fact that the the whole point of the Iraq war was to liberate these people from Saddam Hussein and that that this oil would help rebuild the country. And the complete opposite has happened since 2003.
0: Is there anything in the international community or say the U.S. could do in this situation? Well, I, oh, I would...
1: Stay away. Yeah.
0: Actually,
3: they have made such a mess of it. It really... And, but some kind of UN presence... Uh, some uh, grand uh, aid bargain is possibly the only solution, but there are plenty of smart Iraqis, it's very patronising to say that they can do it, but it's energising that human capital, uh, you know, that potential. It is very, very fragmented. There are whole ungoverned spaces full of Weird militias, but also, as I was saying, that you have a radical jihadi element still very, very present out out in the out in the desert
0: areas, particularly at the moment. How strong is the position of the Iraqi government at the moment?
1: Well, they're not in a really great position right now, given everything that's going on. I mean, I I think that Europe and the United States also recognize that this is not a very reliable ally in this regard. Even if you were to give the aid, let's say the United Nations. I mean, this is a corrupt government you're dealing with. Who's to say any of it would go to the people? So, for... The reality is that we're kind of in a bind the the US has pulled out some of its troops and we're, the Trump administration has been pushing hard on pulling out more and so um, it, 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 there's not much leverage we have with the Iraqi government right now and I think the real the real reality is we need to stimulate this people capital the potential yeah. of the Iraqi people we need to help them get those jobs and help them with their economy and help them with I mean the sewage and the electricity and arguably, I so mean, how do
0: you go on to fix all that? What will the first step, steps be?
1: Oh Well, it, it's just... Uh, well, I, th- I think, Mark, to, to help you out,
3: it is a real go-figure moment. I think Holly is absolutely right. Those interventions, and even as a Brit, it's still—I remember reporting it. It it was so hard to say. Look, there aren't the weapons of mass destruction. Some of us knew it even before the attack was launched in in March uh, uh, in March 2003. Equally, the absolutely half-baked approach at nation-building in Afghanistan, and the two go together. So the tide has gone out on intervention, humanitarian intervention. The thing that Tony Blair was so big on, and he thought it made him a secular uh, global messiah of aid and intervention. It doesn't work, but the opposite doesn't work. Retreat and isolationism, because it doesn't it it doesn't serve you at all. And that's what the right, the hard right, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world, and even the what seems to be the democratic governments of Trump and Boris Johnson seem to be harder right, they haven't really got to grips with this. They are part of a global economy, and part of the global economy is is global aid and security. How are you going to do it without invading and making a mess of it, as you did in
0: Iraq and Afghanistan, as I said, I'm afraid, uh, uh, Marcus? Go figure. <laughs> well, we have heard about protests in Iraq already and regular listeners will know that we have been giving detailed coverage of the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. The West is also seeing citizens take to the streets. Earlier this year, French President Emmanuel Macron faced the greatest challenge of his career when the streets of Paris were disrupted by the disgruntled Gilets Jaunes movement. Here in London today, climate change protest group Extinction Rebellion has once more set out to shut down the city. Holly, these groups are protesting broadly different issues, although there are some common themes. Do you think we have entered a new age of protest?
1: Not necessarily, and I'll say why. The 2008 financial crisis is where a lot of this roots in for when it comes to protests about the economy. Um, that kind of sparked what we've been seeing around the globe when it comes to the economy. And uh, I think it's in our blood as human beings to protest when the government does not respond to our needs and wants. And so when we see these protests in Hong Kong or the Extinction Rebellion or right now in Iraq. It's because these needs are not being met. They're not being paid attention to. So people have to go out and take to the streets and express themselves.
0: Robert, uh, uh, how hopeful do you feel like when you're following these these protests? We can see the situation as people using or calling for democratic rights.
3: Well, the Extinction Rebellion, thing really does worry me, not because I'm old and square. It's quite the opposite is that I think they've got the diagnosis right and there is a huge seismic problem that we're facing. None of them can synthesize a solution or a resolution because if the, and the indicators of climate and environmental change and including demographic change are such, you're going to have to go to a radical, radically different life model. Um, uh, urban civilization will be, if it should be, would need to be very, very different in 40 or 50 years' time. And my trade, our trade of journalism, simply can 't handle this because we 're using the old toolbox that 's what 's known as cognitive dissonance. You look at a problem which is unique and you come up with the old with the old tools for it. Just think about this particularly with with climate change, just to focus on that. The most interesting and innovative writing is coming in science fiction at the moment with radical transformations of the society cataclysmic blows um, uh, either from you know, threats from outer space or whatever. But what humans have to do, have to how they have to re- regenerate. The interests of conservatism are so strong, and mm-hmm. I will just use a four-letter word which uh, indicates it, and it is coal that you look at an economy or a governance like Australia, it's completely fixated on this totally destructive uh, material, and it's breaking out of that that's going to take some time, but it's very interesting in the arts in the UK, for instance, they're kicking out sponsor sponsorship from the big petroleum companies like, like BP, so it is beginning, the glacier is beginning of opinion, it is beginning to slide but I think it's going to crack up radically before we actually have a viable remedy.
0: Holly, do you think Extinction Rebellion is right in causing disruption?
1: Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to comment on that. I think that there's a bit of there's, mixed, there's a bit of extremeness to what they're doing but at the same time their argument is that this isn't extreme measures they need to take for things to change but I don't think That's the way of moving about things. I think we need to engage people more. I mean, look at Greta Thunberg. She doesn't have people angry and pouring fake blood on walls. That's not really if, I don't even know if that's really The deployment uh, of
3: language is uh, brilliant. Uh, yeah,
1: brilliant. And, yeah. And, and so I think there's ways we can address this that doesn't require that extremeness. I, I do like that there are protests going on and I, I think, but we also just marching in the streets is enough. We as human beings need to actually yeah. consider how we can impact at home. We have to recycle more or consider the packagings in our products. I noticed in the UK, there's lots of plastic over things that don't need to have plastic. So I think there's little measures that we at home can also take to contribute.
0: Holly Dacris and Robert Fox, thank you very much. In a moment, when a scandal fails to find its mark, you are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippie. 3 weeks ago, old photographs of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wearing blackface makeup seemed sure to derail his re-election campaign. Monaco's Thomas Lewis asks why they haven't.
2: 3 weeks ago, photographs of Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his younger days, dressed up and his face daubed with dark makeup, were published. Those pictures felt like they would become the defining imagery of this year's vote. Not solely for what they depicted, but because they contributed to a picture of a person not to be trusted. The personification of broken promises, of political aloofness, of business as usual. Now, however, the latest opinion polls suggest that his Liberal Party is still locked effectively in a three-way tie with his main opponents. The Conservatives on the right and the left-leaning New Democrats, the NDP. Trudeau's ratings are unchanged, and new research published by McGill University in Montreal late last week revealed the scandal died out in online chatter after just three days. Why? Well, firstly, Trudeau's handling of the affair was a masterclass in political damage control. His apologies were swift, sincere, and he made them over and over again. Secondly, his opponents have failed to capture the popular imagination more broadly. Scandals can make voters reassess their political priorities, but Trudeau seems to represent more than his misadventures in fancy dress. He is still a contender.
0: That was Thomas Lewis, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Macellari and researched by Yoninka fan Naomi Porter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand-new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time, 10.00 a.m. in San Francisco. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.